Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Amos chapter 1, verse 2. This is the word of God. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to your word once again. We're excited to do so. We're excited to start this series, and we just pray this morning that you would show us your truth in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake and for our sake and for your glory alone. Amen. Please be seated. To paraphrase the great Old Testament scholar Alec Moter, we humans like to feel the rush of fear as long as we retain a safe distance from the danger. We love to feel chills down our spine as long as it's on our own terms, like a lightning fast roller coaster. Or uh, a number of years ago, my family and I visited the Out of Africa Wildlife Park in Verde, Arizona. And one of the highlights of the afternoon is what they call the predator feed. They drive a trailer around the park and throw big chunks of raw meat over the fence to the lions. It's more than a little freaky to have just this fence separating you from the lion, but it's kind of a rush. And if you've ever been close to a lion when it roars, the sound is almost otherworldly. Despite its massive body, the decibel level seems out of proportion somehow. Like if it were electronic, it would blow a speaker. That's fun. But imagine the fence comes down and there's a dead carcass of flesh right next to you with nothing separating you from the lion and he stares you down and lets out a fearsome roar. That is the portrait of God with which Amos opens his book. We start a new preaching series, as Reed mentioned, on the book of Amos, lasting six weeks, and the major theme of Amos is social justice, how we treat one another in society, especially the marginalized, the oppressed, the disadvantaged, This is something we see Jesus very concerned about in the Gospels and something the prophets of old, like Amos, were concerned about as well because, as we will see, God is very concerned about it. Over the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion about social justice in Christian circles. And unfortunately, much of that discussion has been unhelpful and unproductive, especially what you see on social media, unsurprisingly. Political tribalism being one of the key reasons this subject gets obscured, at least among Christians in the United States. So your pastors thought it wise and timely to see what Amos has to teach us about these things. We'll be covering the first two chapters today, and as Reed mentioned, you can follow along in your sermon outline. So number one, Amos, the man and his message. Let's read the first Two verses of the book. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars 
from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn the, mount, the top of Mount Carmel withers. His name Amos means burden bearer. He had a burden to bear, and that burden was this message God had given him to preach. It was not fun to be a prophet. You're telling people things they don't want to hear, and sometimes you're killed for it. That's a burden. Now, shepherds were near the bottom of the social order. This is not the normal word for shepherd, however. There, there's a range of possibilities uh, for what his exact profession was. He might have been a breeder of sheep or livestock generally. In chapter 7, we learn he was also a dresser of sycamore fig trees, scraping or protecting the trees from insects. So he was not necessarily poor, but what we can say for certain is, is that he was a farmer. He was involved in farming. And coming from the Midwest, I can tell you that some of the best people in the world, some of the best wisdom I've ever received have been from farmers. Now, Tekoa, where Amos is from, was a small village near Bethlehem in Judah, the southern kingdom. Just a quick review of the history. After the reign of David and then Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two. Judah in the south, where David's descendants continued on the throne, and Israel in the north. Now, Amos, even though he lives in Judah, is proclaiming his message mainly to Israel. And it's probable that Amos is the earliest of the writing prophets. Now, time, times are good economically. The land is ripe. The pastures are green. Mount Carmel was, a, was known as a particularly lush area. But like in Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. There were many who were wealthy and materially prosperous, but there were also many who were destitute and oppressed by systems of injustice. And Amos says these well-watered pastures mourn and even Carmel withers. And he begins not with a reasoned argument, but with a blood-curdling roar. The Lord roars, and he roars in protest and judgment at the injustices he sees. We don't know anything about this earthquake, or scholars don't, and certainly I don't, the earthquake that he references, but clearly it was known to the readers. And like that earthquake, two years later, the Lord's voice shakes the mountain. And about this roar of judgment, we see three things note in verse 2. First, the judgment is imminent, okay, because it's going to happen soon. He roars. Second, the judgment is comprehensive. It will affect the entire land, from the low pastures to the mountaintop of Carmel. It will all be affected by drought, fire, locusts, and the third the judgment is divine. It is from the Lord who roars from Zion or Jerusalem. So now, just before we leave this first point, there's some just clear application right off the bat as it relates to this man and his message for us. Amos was a farmer. And you don't have to be a professional to proclaim the word of God. You don't need the world's credentials to serve the Lord in significant Ways. Amos was just an ordinary blue-collar guy. He didn't have a master's degree from the University of Bethlehem. In fact, it doesn't appear that he had any religious training at all. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and he can use you. 
Think of the first disciples called by Jesus to do the foundational work of the church, fishermen. Now, the other side of that, of course, is that Amos was probably pretty comfortable just continuing his farming. Most farmers I know, that's all they want to do. Okay, it's their comfort zone. It's hard work, but they're good at it. They love it. But God had plans for Amos to minister in a very significant way, and he pulls him out of that comfortable place into being his spokesperson. And as we'll see, it wasn't pretty. He lives out his name as the burden bearer. As Tony Evans writes, sharing a message of doom in a time of plenty is not a way to inspire people or win friends. This was uncomfortable and hard. And sometimes the Lord will call you to do something really difficult. Speak out for him. Maybe even just confronting a loved one, someone you love about sin in their life. Speaking the truth in love, as we saw in Ephesians. That's hard. It's uncomfortable. Or maybe explaining the gospel to an unbeliever. That can be hard. Like Amos, it would be far more comfortable for us if he hadn't called us to do those things. But he does. But just like he's with Amos, he's with you. And when you have a roaring lion backing you up, there's no need to fear. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is his work. And this is how the bulk of ministry happens even today. Ordinary people being obedient to an extraordinary God. So that's Amos. Now let's dig into his prophecy. The rest of the passage, we'll see roar after roar. What angers the lion of Judah? Let's start with number two in your outline, the Lord's judgment on neighbor nations. Verse three, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. There are six surrounding nations here. The first is Syria with its major city, Damascus. Now, these are Gentile nations, these six, without God's law. So we see something really important here. God holds all nations and societies accountable to certain moral standards, not just Israel and Judah. These Gentile nations may not have the law of Moses, they don't, but they know better than what they're doing. And the Lord has written something of his universal moral law on the hearts of all people. We see this, don't we, in in Romans chapter 1 and 2. And not just individual people, but note, nations are accountable to God and will be judged. Now, in each of these judgments, we see this poetic expression, three transgressions and for four. This is just a Hebrew way of saying one too many. We might say today, three strikes and you're out. Okay, three major sins would be sufficient for this judgment. The fourth puts it beyond doubt. And basically, in each case, it's the fourth transgression mentioned. So for Damascus, their sin is cruelty and undue violence. He says they threshed Gilead, a region in Israel, with sledges of iron. So what is threshing? Okay, I love it when farming illustrations come right out of the text. In my childhood in southwestern Minnesota, there was a threshing museum in Hanley Falls. Okay, before the advent of the combine, which was so named because it combined the three main functions of harvesting, picking or reaping the grain, threshing, 
or separating the grain from the husk, and then winnowing or separating the grain from the chaff with air or wind. So before combines and before threshing machines, they would put everything in a pile and then use horses or oxen to pull heavy wooden sledges on the grain, crush it, separate it, and then sometimes, as mentioned in verse 3, the, the sledges would be made of iron. This is what they did with people. Okay, they're enemies of Gilead. John Walton says they would literally put prisoners on their stomachs and dry these iron sledges over them. Just a brutal and inhumane practice. Syria treated Gilead like they were nothing but a pile of grain. Crushed them. As Moltaire notes, sometimes societies can think, hey, we're at war. Okay, extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. Well, man may think so, but God doesn't. People created in his image are not things to be treated as grain to be crushed. And because of serious sin, judgment is coming. The next roar is at the Philistine city of Gaza. Verse 6, read with me. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Gaza was the largest city of the Philistines. Their sin is very straightforward. They captured people and sold them as slaves. This was not the relatively civilized system of slavery like we heard from Alan Kember in Ephesians in the Roman Empire. This is the kidnapping kind of evil that was prohibited for God's people in Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. And unfortunately for us Americans, this was the very kind of slavery in the antebellum south, where sadly, many Christians used tried to justify it biblically, despite that it would, would have warranted the death penalty in Israel. And slave traitor is among the list of the wicked in 1 Timothy 1. So Gaza was trafficking slaves to Edom, and like Syria, would be judged accordingly. The next roar is for Tyre, verse 9. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Like Gaza, Tyre is guilty of the same sin, trafficking slaves to Edom. But it's even worse for Tyre because they had a covenant with Israel. They established with King Solomon when Hiram was king of Tyre. This was a working treaty for many years with good trade relations, and they broke it. Breaking your word matters to God. Okay, many today, you hear everybody lies. I mean, everyone breaks their word, no big deal. Listen to Revelation 21.8. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God takes your word seriously, and Tyre is judged accordingly. The next roar is for Edom, verse 11. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword, cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Now the people of Edom were the descendants of Esau who was of course the brother of Jacob or Israel. So this hits a little closer to home. 
Their sin was military action against Israel, their brother. It says they cast off all pity, meaning their, their violence was without compassion. And further, Edom had already been implicated with the slave trade. So likewise, verse 12, their walls will also be burned and they will be taken away. The next roar, starting in verse 13, is for Ammon. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border, verse 15, and their king shall go into exile. The, the sins of Ammon are particularly hard to read and, or even imagine. The Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew, and their sin, like Damascus, was brutal warfare against Gilead. It says they ripped open pregnant women, a, a level of wickedness that's just hard to comprehend. So greedy for more territory, so thirsty to expand their borders, they not only destroyed those they attacked, but made an exclamation point by gruesomely and graphically wiping out the seed of their enemies. And so they will be judged and taken into exile. Finally, for these neighboring nations is Moab, chapter two, verse one. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. The Moabites, also descendants of Lot, their sin mentioned here is another instance of disregard for humanity. Apparently this practice involved burning the bones of a person into lime or whitewash, which was then used as plaster to make walls. This is what they did to the king of Edom. Now, I think it's really important to remember here, this is one Gentile nation without the law doing this to a desecrated body of another Gentile nation without the law. Okay, God's people, Israel, Judah, not involved. Yet God cares, doesn't he? He roars. This foreign king is an image bearer of God, and the desecration of his dead body is detestable to the Lord, and he will judge them for it. God's concern and angry at immoral behavior wherever it is found. It's not based on ethnicity or doing it to God's nation. He cares about how nations and how people treat one another, not just his nation. And he judges them by his standard, not theirs. Earlier I referenced Romans 1 and 2. There's a right and wrong implanted in the hearts and consciences of every single person made in his image. Let's just catalog what we've seen so far from these neighboring nations. Gross and gratuitous acts of cruelty upon people defeated in war. The thoughtless enslavement of large numbers of innocent people purely for economic greed. The selling of people as slaves, the violation of a treaty agreement, the rejection of all feelings toward relatives, the terrorization of defenseless people for political gain, the desecration of the dead. These are crimes against humanity. As one commentator said, each act betrays a disrespect for humanity, a callous treatment as pe of people as objects which can be manipulated, used, mistreated, according to the desires of the mighty and powerful. People were considered things, not humans made in the image of God. God regards these deeds as willful acts of rebellion against his moral order, things that are written in the hearts of everyone. All peoples intuitively know and understand that breaking a covenant is wrong. 
Kidnapping and selling innocent people for economic gain is wrong. Killing defenseless pregnant women and ripping them open is barbaric and wrong. Even in the fog of war, where killing is happening, and people get confused, they still know there's inhumane treatment that's outside the bounds. And the Lord holds each nation accountable for its treatment of others. Now the next roar, number three in your outline, is directed to Judah. Let's read in verse four of chapter two. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray those after which their fathers walked, so I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. We see the same formula we did with the Gentile nations here with Judah. Three transgressions in for four. Well, what's their fourth? What's the sin that puts Judah over the top? What transgression pushes them to certain judgment? They rejected God's law. After the kingdom was divided, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah both cycled slowly to decay and eventual judgment and exile. But Judah's decay was slower. While Israel basically had no good kings from day one and were sort of on the fast track to judgment, Judah had a few good kings to stem the tide toward idolatry. They lasted an extra 140 years before they were taken into captivity. Judah held to a higher standard than these Gentile nations. The Mosaic law, the revelation of God that they had. But their lies, probably a reference to idols, their idols have led them astray. And in time, they will be judged. Now, this is really interesting. In many ways, the Israelites considered Judah a foreign nation as well. Okay, so Israel, the main target of the book of prophecy, may be cheering at this point, actually. Okay, all these enemies around them, even Judah, getting blasted by these roars. They may have felt some level of pleasure, even smug self-righteousness. And to make it even more interesting, Judah is the seventh nation, the number of completeness. So Israel's thinking, wow, what a capstone. The culmination of perfect judgment on Judah. Bring it, Amos. Preach. Well, Israel... There is an eighth nation, and the previous seven were the completion of a perfect preamble to the loudest roar from the Lord that goes to the end of the prophecy. Number four, Israel judged. Let's read in verses, uh, starting in verse six of chapter two. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. The climax of these roars is against Israel. And the previous seven are not random nations. Yeah, there's sort of a circular pattern on, on a map and just envision the Lord spiral, spiraling around, getting closer and closer, and then bullseye Israel. There's the, the, the list of sins for which their judge is way longer than the other nations. Now, 
This section through the end of chapter 2 that we'll cover today is just a preview of what we will see fleshed out in detail in the next four chapters. And while, while idolatry is certainly an issue, the focus here is social injustice. There are seven sins, all of which in some way take advantage of the vulnerable, the marginalized, the disadvantaged. Verse 6, selling the righteous for silver. This refers to bribery in the legal system. Okay, where innocent people are being treated unfairly in court decisions. The needy for a pair of sandals probably alludes to an unnecessary foreclosure on a small loan. Imagine the, the parable, the, you know, the, someone sells their, uh, themselves into slavery because they can't pay off their debt. Well, imagine someone has to sell themselves into slavery because of something so insignificant as a pair of sandals. Verse 7, trampling the poor and afflicted. The oppressed are denied justice. The legal process is skewed against people who don't have money. It's a perversion of justice. We see throughout the Proverbs, don't we, how detestable a miscarriage of justice is to God. When differing weights or measures are used, he detests dishonest scales. Last part of verse 7, a man and his father in the same girl, there's definitely a sexual immorality component here to be sure, but it's not the word normally used. So while it could refer to prostitution with the temple shrines and all that, certainly detestable, perhaps more likely, given the emphasis on the marginalized, this is referring to two men in the same household taking advantage of a female servant in their home. According to the Mosaic law, female bond servants who were not married were, given, were to be given proper honor and protection in the household because they, so, they could so easily be taken advantage of. If so, this is not only sexual immorality, but sexual exploitation of a powerless girl. Either way, the Lord's holy name is profaned and he roars. Verse 8, again, religious people exploiting the poor in a legal situation. People might put up a garment, their garment as a pledge, which according to the law of Moses was supposed to be returned by sunset. These supposedly religious people laying themselves at the altar, confiscating the garment and so stealing from the disadvantaged. The end of verse 8, you see those who've been fined. This word is a government tax, unjust in this case. They would use these fines, which were stolen money from the disadvantaged, to buy wine for themselves. When you think of Jesus' summary of the law, love God, love neighbor. What an epic fail in Israel. The poor and needy among them couldn't have been loved less by their neighbors. The legal system, the corrupt government, the religious authorities, those with wealth and power were oppressing the disadvantaged by stealing their money, stealing their property, denying them justice, perverting the court system, and possibly even sexually violating them. All for the wicked pleasure and greed of those in power. Now, unlike the other nation, nations, the Lord piles it on here to show how heinous their sin. Because this is all happening in Israel with the backdrop of God's special grace toward them. Verse 9, yet it, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Verse 10, 
also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These verses are a recollection of the grace God had shown them in the past when, listen, they were the oppressed. That they're guilty of these things is bad enough, but to make things worse, they've done these things in spite of the amazing acts of God's mercy toward them. He destroyed the Amorites so they could possess the very land in which they're living. Earlier, he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand with his acts of power over their oppressor. Interesting that he mentions the taking of the land first, even though it was after the Exodus, probably to emphasize, I brought you into this land, and I can sure take you out of it, which is exactly the judgment coming in their exile to Assyria. Let's read in verse 11. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites, verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. The whole point of prophecy was to warn them with God's word, and they silenced the prophets. The very people they should be listening to and heeding, learning from. God raised up Nazarites to model commitment to him. A Nazarite was someone who took a vow for a period of time to be specially dedicated to the Lord. They didn't drink alcohol. They didn't shave. They were super committed to God. Well, these people tried to get the Nazarites to break their vows, to break their special commitment to God. In other words, they weren't satisfied with their own sin, but they tried to pull the Nazarites into sinning as well. So judgment is coming. Verse 16, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. What a sad story. And a sad irony, the Israelites were the oppressed ones and God had mercy on them. Now they have become the oppressors, unconcerned with the marginalized, unconcerned with the disadvantaged. And God says, well, if you're gonna act like you don't know me, I'll treat you accordingly. In the last three verses, there are seven kinds of soldiers listed who will suffer defeat when they're invaded at the Lord's hand. No one, no one will be able to escape it. This day would come in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians take Israel into captivity. All right, in the remainder of our time, I want to consider some further application, number five. In our culture, well, let me say it this way. The culture in Amos' day seems worlds apart from us, and it is. That's why I spent so much time digging into the context so we can draw out these principles. In Romans 15, Paul says this. Whatever was written in former days, like the book of Amos, was written for our instruction. Okay, so even though this prophecy was not written to us, it was written for us. So why do we rarely hear it preached? Jim Boyce says the reason Amos has not been preached very often over the years is because this book speaks powerfully against social injustices that implicate and condemn many who would otherwise read it. So what can we learn here from the first two chapters? Summarize it with two statements in your Outline, injustice angers the Lord and it should anger us. And the Lord fights for the oppressed, the marginalized, the disadvantaged, and so should we. 
I want to consider these things on a personal level and then primarily as it relates to society. First, personally, one commentator used an example that reminded me of trading baseball cards as a kid. I had one friend, Tony Schwartz, who just completely cleaned me out one time. He had older brothers. He knew way more than I did. And so he ended up with all my good cards. And I remember, after that, trying to do the same thing to others, including my little brother, sort of tricking him into giving me his good cards for ones I knew weren't worth very much. Now, this may seem like a silly example, and maybe it is, but it, I think it hits at the heart of what draws the roar from the Lord in our passage. Being in a position of power and taking advantage of someone for your own greed. Today, it may not be baseball cards, but selling something on Craigslist. It would be very easy to hide the defects, right? Take advantage of someone who really needs something. Maybe they can't afford something new, something better. That's not an opportunity to try to take advantage of someone. That's an opportunity to not only be fair, but gracious to someone. To hide something or take advantage for your own gain is the very spirit of wickedness that we see in this passage. It angers the Lord. Don't stare down the lion. Israel and Judah had been so, shown so much grace from God. They had a much better knowledge of who God is than their Gentile neighbors did. To an even greater degree, we Christians know better. We have been shown incredible mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. We know much more about the character of God than our neighbors do. So we, like Israel and Judah then, are held to a higher standard by possessing the word of God. James says to us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, the only religion that matters, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. There is a concern for the disadvantaged that should mark and pervade the life of a believer. So Christians should be the most concerned for the marginalized. This is our testimony. Now the main thrust here in these roars from the Lord is, of course, not directed at individuals per se, but at a national or societal level. And six of the eight nations don't even have the law of God. Yet they're held accountable to some fundamental moral divine standards. So how should we think about injustice and caring for the oppressed in our own nation and society? There's been a raging debate in the last couple of years in, uh, in, in the broader American church over the relationship between social justice and the gospel. And it's a good debate. It's an important debate because we can fall into the ditch on either side of this tension. Okay, on, on the one hand... We don't want the church to lose the gospel. I mean, to become only a machine for good influence in society, caring for the disadvantaged. And no one is eternally saved by the message of caring for the oppressed. So we must distinguish the gospel from the implications of the gospel. That's one ditch that we could fall into and one in which uh, more liberal churches are generally susceptible. But there's another ditch we could fall into on the other side. The implications of the gospel, if they're not visible in your life, then you must question if you've really understood and have been transformed by the gospel. For instance, if your understanding of marriage and how you treat your spouse 
has not been revolutionized by the gospel, then you don't understand the gospel. We, we should not say, we never teach about marriage. We just preach the gospel. No. A right understanding of the gospel will revolutionize your view on everything because your life has been reoriented in the gospel around Jesus and his word. So now God's concerns in the entire Bible become our concerns as believers. So we've been transformed by the gospel that our concerns about injustice in society and compassion for the marginalized will be revolutionized as well. We see throughout the, the prophets like Amos and frankly also from Jesus that righteousness and justice are not pitted against each other. They go together, don't they? Israel had been shown so much grace from God as his chosen people, but their rampant injustice and oppression of the disadvantaged made it clear they didn't understand that grace at all and had not been transformed by it. So neither can we overly separate the gospel from its implications. That's the other ditch we could fall into, and that's the one that Amos is going to protect us from. And while both ditches are dangerous, I think it's this second one that conservative churches are more susceptible. I honestly think if Amos were alive today and preaching to conservative American churches today, many well-meaning Christians would dismiss him as being woke. He's talking too much about the oppressed, about social justice. That's not our focus, that's liberal. But Amos reminds us that social injustice angers the Lord and it should anger us. God cares for the marginalized and the oppressed and so should we. Dishonest scales, moving boundary markers are detestable to God. A miscarriage of justice by civil authorities angers him. Whether it's in the court system or by law enforcement, when someone is unfairly advantaged or disadvantaged, that angers the Lord. Or a perversion of religious authority, another targeted group in our passage. I don't want to pick on the Southern Baptist Convention because this could happen anywhere in any church. But you've probably seen this scandal in the news and it's informative. When victims of sexual abuse are silenced or ignored, to protect those in religious power in church leadership, the Lord roars. That's exactly the kind of thing he hates. Now, are there secular philosophies today, like critical theory that are dangerous? Yes, there are. Here's what's not dangerous, to be concerned for the oppressed, <laughs> to be concerned about injustice, to be concerned about the marginalized, the disadvantaged. In fact, brother, sister, the clear message from Amos is that what is dangerous is to not be concerned. And frankly, I think that's the main reason these empty secular philosophies, like critical theory, which have twisted true compassion into something ungodly, one reason people are inclined to listen to them is because they're filling a void left by the church. Because we Christians have failed in generations past to stand up for the oppressed in many instances, not all, but many. And so the situation today, I think, is somewhat self-inflicted for Christians in America. 
Your pastors are praying that the Holy Spirit works through this preaching series to communicate these truths from Amos faithfully and that we would be receptive as his people. God cares about the marginalized, the disadvantaged. He fights for them, and so should we. I have a good friend from college that we support as a family, and he's ministered for almost 30 years to the marginalized. High school boys, young men in inner city Chicago. And I remember asking him once over dinner a couple years ago, I said, Dave, I live in the suburbs. I mean, with relatively well-to-do, mostly white people. I mean, what do I need to know about what these young men are dealing with? And I'll, ne- I'll never forget he answered right away. He said, someone probably told you, Lars, as a young man, as, as, as I was told, he said, hey, you can do it. You know, they encouraged you. They gave you confidence that if you work hard, and they modeled this, you can make it. You can be successful. He said, none of these boys believe that. None of them have any confidence to think they can be successful. They've never seen it done by any man in their family. They feel hopeless, and they just expect tragedy, which for many comes. How sad. These boys are marginalized. Now, in America today, as we all know, politics has ruined everything. (laughs) So it's inevitable anytime we touch on these messy areas in society, instead of our minds being flooded with scripture and relevant passages, they can be flooded with talking points from our political tribe or news network. What about, what about, I get that. Okay, there are all kinds of complexities of sin, systemic in our society regarding the disadvantaged. I'm not advocating for particular policies. Okay, those things should be debated. There are many considerations. What Amos teaches us, at a minimum, is that it's not an option for the believer to not care. It's not an option for the believer to not be concerned about the marginalized. So let's not reflex with talking points as we think about the disadvantaged in our own society. You know, to my own shame, I say this. To my own shame, I used to say things like this as a younger man. If this or that injustice is happening, I don't see it. I mean, I certainly didn't contribute to that. It's not my problem. I didn't do anything to oppress anyone. I never treated anyone differently because of any external characteristics. Not my issue. Then I had this convicting thought. Imagine if I used that same logic in my attitude about unborn babies. I didn't cause any unwanted pregnancies. I never put any women in these situations. Unborn children, disadvantaged women, not my issue. Well, that's not a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, is it? If the marginalized are God's concern, there are concerns. Not every person in Israel was equally guilty of every sin contributing to these injustices. Some of those with power and influence just remain silent, and that can be all it takes. But note this, they're all preached to, every one of them, they're all held accountable, and they will all go into exile and flee away naked in that day without exception. 
Let me just close by briefly mentioning some practical ways we as a church are already connected to a proper response to this message. I was encouraged last week in our women's theology class by one of our ladies, I didn't know this, but she works at a facility in Littleton for children that have been abused. I mean, disadvantaged, to say the least. What a great work. I think of Marty Pasquale in Italy, slavery no more, a ministry to victims of human trafficking. Girls... Girls younger than my own daughters, drugged, manipulated into prostitution. Our friends from Orchard in the Detroit, Michigan area, practically serving and caring for needy Syrian refugees without regard for their nationality or their religion. And of course, Alternatives Pregnancy Center and their mission to the marginalized. Unborn babies, yes, praise God, but also intensive care for mothers, often in excruciating circumstances, sometimes completely abandoned by those with the power. The breadth and depth of this ministry only increases, especially in Colorado, given the Supreme Court decision. All these ministries embody the heart of God for the oppressed in action. Now, do we want all these marginalized people to know Jesus? Yes, we do. But do not miss, do not miss this critical message from Amos. Regardless of their spiritual condition and regardless of their ultimate eternal destiny, God cares deeply how they're treated in society. In fact, he cares so much that he roars. Would you please stand as we close in prayer? Our Father, we're humbled this morning. I just pray that you'd work in our hearts even right now and throughout this series to convict us where we need to be convicted, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that we would not be led astray by other philosophies, but we'd be solely guided by the principles in your word, despite if it means we don't stick neatly into some political category. We want to be faithful to your scripture first and foremost. And Lord, I pray for those right here that have been spiritually oppressed and do not know you through your son, Jesus Christ. May they bow the knee and confess him as Lord and believe in his resurrection for their justification. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.